Jesus, we don't even know the ways that we don't believe what we just sang. And um, you challenge us um, to believe uh, that your word is true, to believe that your heart towards us is true. You come beside us uh, and you show us your goodness. And so we need that as we come to your word. We um, are desperate for it. So guide us now. Holy Spirit, show us who Jesus really is because otherwise we will write stories about him that aren't true. Do that now during our time, we pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Um, Like I said, my name is Elliot, uh, and I'm the pastor at our 12 South uh, congregation, and it is uh, good to be with you. I recognize half of half of your faces here, uh, which is is fun. But if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've been in somewhat of a mini-series called The Priesthood of the Believer, where we've been looking at this biblical declaration that the Lord, since the dawn of time, has intended that his people would be priests to the world. That male and female, that we were created in the garden in the first temple to be priests to the world and to spread God's goodness and God's joy and God's delight and to bring as many people into that experience as we can. And so we've wrapped up that series, but we're, we're, not, we're not totally departing from that. We're almost continuing to try to pull that thread, and we're asking this question. Okay, so if we're priests, Midtown, you are a priest if you belong to Jesus. And if we're priests, how then should we live? What are priests to do? What, what, is, what is the way that priests are to move and groove? How, how are priests supposed to view themselves and view their role in the world? And so we're asking the question, what does it look like to be a priest in the world? And we're doing that by looking at the Ten Commandments. Now, before you roll your eyes and say that the Ten Commandments are outdated and that's antiquated and we don't need that anymore and that's, that's some moral law that we're now sophisticated enough to believe that was, was, was really for that time and we have a different set of, of rules now that should guide us, we're going to look at this in light of what we said because when God tells his people in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19, you are a kingdom of priests, the very next chapter is where he gives them the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And so when God declares to his people in the Old Testament, your priest, the very next thing he tells them is, and this is how I want you to live. But we're not only going to be looking at the Ten Commandments, we're going to to do this a little bit differently because we're midtown. We can't do anything the way that everyone else does it. So we are going to look at the Ten Commandments. But then what we're going to do as we read the Ten Commandments, we're actually going to look at a New Testament story, a New Testament parable, or New Testament Testament experience with Jesus that actually embodies the heart of those commandments that we're studying. And so we're going to read the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to read, we're going to read a couple of the commandments, and then we're going to read a New Testament story or a New Testament encounter that shows us what the heart of that commandment actually looks like. Because us... The church, those that belong to Jesus, priests under our high priest Jesus, we actually have the power through the gospel to live into and to obey the Ten Commandments like those in the Old Testament never did. And so what would it look like as priests that belong to Jesus to understand the heart of these commandments as we study these New Testament counterparts that embody these commandments? So if that makes no sense, sorry, we're going we're gonna to push through anyway. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read two sections of scripture. The first is the commandments, a couple of them, and then a New Testament story that embodies it. And we're going to study both of them together. So the first passage is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. This is the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to read from Matthew chapter 19, the story of the rich 
young ruler. So Exodus chapter 20 says this, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then Matthew chapter 19, if you were good at sword drills, you can turn there. If not, just trust me, this is what it says. Starting in verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, the first section we read in Exodus uh, chapter 20 is the first two commandments. And essentially, here's what they say. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And what that means is, is that the Lord, the God of the universe, the God of his people, is to be the primary allegiance of his people. That he's to be the primary affection of his people. That he's to be the primary thing that they trust. That there should be no split or divided hearts when it comes to serving and worshiping and loving the Lord. And the second commandment fits very well with that because it flows out of that. It says, hey, you're going to have the opportunity to worship a bunch of other things other than me. You're going to have the opportunity to trust a bunch of other things other than me. And in the ancient Near East, when those Ten Commandments were given, they often looked like carved images, idols. They looked like these created things that were welded or carved or created and made to display and represent some made-up God, the God of agriculture or the God of fertility or the God of war. And so commandment one and two go perfectly together because the Lord's saying, don't worship or trust anything other than me. And the number one way you're going to want to do that is with these made-up gods that are carved out of wood or stone, these idols, these graven images and the heart of these commandments, the heart of commandment one and two, please understand this before we dive into the Matthew passage. The heart of commandments one and two is ordering the affections of God's people. It's ordering God's people's heart affections. That the primary allegiance of God's people, the primary thing they trust, the thing that we are to look to for meaning, for security, for comfort, for joy, for love, should be the Lord. And there's a thousand different ways that we can split our allegiances and, and have what theologians have called through the years disordered affections, meaning there are things that you love but not in the proper order. 
And so you may say, well, I don't have any, you know, stone gods in my living room. Maybe you do. If you need to confess, we can talk about that later. But most of us don't have that. What we do have is something that we look to, that we trust for our meaning, our purpose, our security, or our comfort more than we look to the Lord. So maybe you look at your bank account and you think, if my bank account doesn't look a certain way, then I don't feel safe. Maybe if my bank account had one more zero, I would feel like I mattered and I would feel like I was secure. And, and commandment number two would say, you are worshiping an image. You are worshiping something other than the Lord. You're trusting in something other than the Lord. Or maybe you're in here and you're saying, look, I don't, I don't, I don't really trust my bank account. I don't really have a lot of power or I don't really have a lot of success. So I'm not really trusting those things. But maybe the thing that you're looking to to give you a sense of worth and a sense of dignity and a sense of value is some romantic relationship. And maybe you're in a romantic relationship and it's not giving it to you and so you're angry. Or maybe you're not in a romantic relationship and you believe if I just had a romantic relationship, something that would calm me, settle me, and make me feel wanted finally, then I would be okay. These are the kinds of things that the first two commandments are asking of us. These commandments require and ask the question, do you have rightly ordered affections in your heart or are your affections disordered? And before we go on this journey looking at this story in the New Testament, you need to know that if you are sitting there going, I have perfectly ordered affections, then you have really disordered affections. That, that it's, it's really okay for us to go, especially as we see this story, as this unfolds, it's okay for us. We don't need to be afraid of admitting that we have very disordered affections. The hope is, though, that we wouldn't stay there. The hope is that the Lord, through his coming after us, through what we just sang, that, that the Lord coming after us, he would rightly order our affections, maybe even each day of the week. So we turn to this New Testament story, what is, what is infamously known as the rich young ruler. And it may not appear on first read when we read through it that, that the rich young ruler goes in tandem with the first two commandments, but I can tell you this story is like a laser scalpel of the heart exposing in us how are our heart's affections ordered. The story begins like this, verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. In the Luke version of this story, we're told that this man was not only uh, wealthy, we're told that later on in the story, we're told that this man was a ruler. So he's rich and he's a ruler, which means in that day and age, it doesn't say what degree, but he had status, he had power, he had authority, and he had money. (laughs) And with a wealth gap that was even greater than the wealth gap that we know of today, this man was at the very top of the social food chain. And this man comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And if you break that question down, what he really asks is, what good thing must I do to get? What do I have to do in order to get something back? And what this man is exposing in himself is that he believes, because this is, this is very natural for the human heart to believe this, if I do something, I get something in return. That this man thought that because that's how idols function. Idols function that way. Idols in the ancient Near East, when you did what they required, when you brought sacrifices to the fertility god, or you, you committed some kind of acts for the, the god of war, he blessed you. And so this man shows he's coming to Jesus like he comes to idols. What do I need to do? Jesus, tell me what I need to do to get the thing that I want from you. In religion, we always ask the question, 
What must I do to get? Because when you're worshiping an idol, you bring your acts, you bring your prayers, you bring your obedience to that God, and the tit-for-tat nature of the relationship meant that you got something in return. This man is treating Jesus like he treats idols. I do something, he's clearly successful in business, I do this, and it works out well for me. He's gotten power, he does something, and it works out well for me. Surely Jesus works the same way. And we will see that this is not at all how Jesus functions. But on a deeper level, and this, this is where I want to camp for just a minute. On a deeper level, he's not just coming to Jesus because he's treating Jesus like an idol. What do I need to do to get something from you? He's actually, he, he's playing his cards out of, the, out of the very gate. He's showing himself. He's coming, he shows by his opening question what he's coming to Jesus for and the posture that he's coming to Jesus in. Because for him to come to Jesus and say, hey, what do I need to do to get something from you? He's asking to get something that he doesn't have. Meaning this, this man knows he's lacking something. How can I be whole? Something in my life isn't working and I need to go do something to get the thing that I don't have. Something about my life isn't enough. And we find out later on in this passage that he's a deeply devoted Jewish man. He's following all the, the second half of the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's following all the moral code of the Ten Commandments. He is doing a great job in his worship life, in his spiritual life, in his religious life, in his economic life, and in his, in his power life. He is a publicly noteworthy observer of all the ethical code of Jewish law, and he's rich, and he's got power. He is doing all the right things, and guess what? He's still wanting something else. And so we have to pause right here for just a minute because if you understand that dynamic, that this man has everything going well for him and he still wants something, we should all be terrified. Because what we just heard from this man is that he's got all the money that we wish we had, he's got all the power that we wish we had, all the influence that we wish we had, and he's got all the spiritual things going well for him that we wish we had. He's crushing it and he's miserable. Because idols always leave us wanting. I'm doing all the right things, Jesus, and I'm still lacking something. So what is it for you? Who in your life do you look at on Instagram or on TV or across the street? Literally, this is not a hypothetical. Think about this. Who in your life has the life you want? Who has the family you want? Who has the marriage you want? Who has the bank account you want? Who has the house you want? Who has the spiritual life that you want? Who has the gifts that you want? Who has it? As you think about that person, I want you less to think about who they are and what they have. I want you to think about the idea that is it possible that if you had everything that that person had, you would still be miserable? Because this guy had basically everything we say we want. And he still has the unnerving sense that he's lacking something. And there's got to be something more than being religious. Got to be something more than being important. Got to be something more than being powerful and being rich. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, calls, he names this. He says we all live in a haunted age. And we're haunted because we're haunted with this, with this reality. He calls it a cross pressure because we have this, this commitment, this subtle commitment that I can get everything I want out of what's in front of me 
If I just get the right family and get the right money and get the right job and get the right career and get all the right things and do the right spiritual things, I can just have whatever I need to get right in front of me and then I'll be satisfied. But we're, we're, we're cross-pressured by this haunting feeling that something has to be more. There's got to be something more than all the things I'm working towards that aren't delivering. And so we take our heart's desire and our heart's affection, just like this rich young ruler, and we demand to get eternal life out of the things we do, out of the things we accomplish, out of the things we accrue, and out of the things we achieve. But we're all haunted by the idea that there has to be more. That's what's happening to the rich young ruler here, and many of us know the feeling. If you haven't experienced that, you will. Maybe you're either um, too young to have experienced that, where you... You, you haven't um, had enough life to know that the things that you want will actually leave you haunted and leave you wanting. Or maybe your idols just haven't let you down enough and they're actually delivering a little, bit, a little hit from what you want them to give you. But take it from this man who had everything you wish you had and more and he was still haunted. So the man asked the question, what do I have to do to get the thing I lack? And Jesus answers him, keep the commandments. And, and this is, this is, this is it's kind of comical. It's not comical, it's sad. This, this man is sad. But reading it, it, it's almost funny that when Jesus says, keep the commandments, his response is, which ones? Because <laughs> any God-fearing Jew, which this man was, would have known the answer to that question. Like, he's asking, like, he's playing dumb. He's saying, well, Jesus, I don't, I mean, I don't, what commandments are you talking about? I don't know the Decalogue. I don't know the Ten Commandments. I don't know the thing that this whole nation, this whole religious system is built on. Like, you know the answer to this question. And so Jesus plays along with him for a minute. He's playing along with him to set him up. And he's not setting him up to crush him. We'll see that in a minute. He's setting him up. He's going along with him so that he can actually try to save this man. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? And Jesus answered, uh, verse 18 and 19, he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus essentially lists the back half of the 10 commandments, commandments five through nine. He lists them all. These are essentially the, the, the outwardly facing, um, the, the, the quantifiable Ten Commandments, that, that you could actually look at someone's life and say, is that person murdering or not? <laughs> is that person stealing or not? Is that person honoring their mother or not? These are all the checklist Ten Commandments, and we'll, we'll dive into them later on in this series, but Jesus lists the ones that you could tell are true or not just by looking at somebody. And this poor, rich, young ruler says, all these I've kept. In fact, in the other versions of the Gospels, he says, all these I've kept since my youth. Jesus, I've been perfect since I was a fetus, bro. Like, I, I, I'm crushing this. And then he says, all these I have kept since my youth, what do I still lack? Because our idols always leave us wanting. And this, this is where Jesus, the, the master surgeon, this is where Jesus so, so profoundly, so um, masterfully, and so kindly goes after this man's heart. Because how Jesus responds can seem really cruel, it can seem harsh, but he, he's, he's going after this man's heart. Because Jesus knows the, the most important commandments are commandments one and two, the commandments we read from Exodus, Exodus 20, one through six. Worship no other gods before me and don't worship idols. 
But Jesus also knows if I said, okay, so you've kept the back half of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing on worshiping God and how are you doing on having idols? Jesus knows if he had just come out and asked that man that question that way, how do you think he would have answered? <laughs> Crushing that too, Jesus. What else you got? So Jesus has to expose this man to show the man that he actually has very disordered affections. He's trying to show this man, you don't really love the Lord above all else. He's trying to show the man what a fraud that he is. This man is very self-deceived into thinking he's crushing it. And Jesus is trying to save him by going to the seat of his heart that belongs exclusively to the Lord. He's saying you can do everything else in your life with perfection and with success. You can even be a great person. But if you don't love the Lord above all else and you worship your idols, you will be miserable. But he knows he has to lead the man to that. He can't just call it out in the man. And so this is how he does it. He's getting to the heart of commandments one and two, the disordered affections, and he says to him, he goes, okay, great, great, I love it. You're crushing it, you're doing awesome. You win Jew of the year, I guess, rich young ruler. But let me ask you this question. Let me give you this additional command. Just one more thing before you go. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus knows the exposing that this will do. Jesus knows the way to get to the heart of the first two commandments is to go after the most important thing in this man's life. Go after the thing that has become this man's functional savior and functional security and functional comfort. He has to go to that place to get at the heart of this man. He knows that this man is holding on tighter to anything than his money. And so Jesus gives a command that would reveal the real answer to the first two commandments question. And then we're told that the rich young ruler, this is, this is hard, this, this, is a, this is a hard thing and we should not be embarrassed or, or feel weird that, it, that it's hard to read because the disciples found it very hard to experience in real time. It says that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. And the disciples watch this and they're, they're, they're dumbfounded. It's a hard thing to watch this man cling to his idols and not let off his death grip of them. The demands of the law of God that Jesus gives crushes this man. He can't do it. We're not told why. We're just told he's unwilling to part with his love of money. And Jesus had to give this man the true weight, the true exposure of the law of God. He has to go to the place that he knows this man will finally be exposed for the fraud that he is. And we should, we should not be afraid of that because that's actually what the law of God should do to all of us. That if we properly understood what the law demanded from us, if we properly understood what the law, law of God required of us, we would, we would feel very exposed as well. In fact, Romans chapter 2 says that that's the first reason why the law was given to God's people was to expose them. The first reason that the law was given was to show God's people that you can't be perfect. The first reason, Romans chapter 2 says this, the law was given to shut every mouth. <laughs> Meaning, the law was given to close the mouth of people that would believe they could justify themselves that they're doing just fine. Not if you understand what the law requires, you're not doing so fine. So what this question does to this man, 
He cannot live in the fantasy that he really does love God more than anything else. His mouth is shut. Jesus' question reveals this in this man. Jesus goes after the idle jugular, so to speak. He is trying to get at the fact that this man is going, everything in this man's life is going well, and he's still miserable because he's worshiping idols, and he has disordered affections when it comes to Jesus. So I don't know what your area is, but I know this, Jesus is not an idol. And I know this, if, you're, if you have disordered affections, which the answer to that is you do, then part of your life is miserable. See, Jesus is a real God who demands your absolute loyalty. Jesus will not share your affections. Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments were given, says that for the Lord your God is a jealous God. He's a jealous lover who will not let you love other lovers that will not care for you as well. Jesus actually loves you so much, he will expose your idols so that he can save you and so that your rightly ordered affections will be back in place. And he knows, Jesus knows because he made you, that's how you were designed and that will actually liberate you, not imprison you. Jesus asked this man this question in order to save him. Because Jesus knows that when we share our affections with pseudo-lovers and pseudo-saviors, we will be miserable. Which, at the, at the end of the day, that's what all of our idols promise us, that they will love us and save us. And so we trust our bank account to make us feel a certain way, and we're saying, save me, save me. Don't let me feel like I'm not being taken care of. And we look to relationships to say, love me, love me. Make me feel loved. Make me feel like I matter. Make me feel like I have something. Make me feel like I'm secure. Make me feel like I'm worth something. And our idols always promise to save us and love us. And Jesus knows they will always let us down. And so he has to expose our idols in order to uproot them, in order to set us free from them. In the Mark version of this story, when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler in the book of Mark, right before Jesus asks the rich young ruler to sell everything and give it away and follow him, right before Mark says this, Jesus looking at him like eye to eye contact, like he's so intimate with this man, says Jesus looking at him loved him and said, sell everything you have and give to the poor. That Jesus was loving this man, trying to save this man, not trying to imprison this man. He's trying to save him from himself and save him from the functional idol in his life. So what's it for you? What's it for me? I know that we're in church and it would be hard to imagine, but can you imagine Jesus coming to you and asking you to give something up and you saying no to him? Like, I actually don't trust you enough to do what you just asked me to do. Jesus is not asking all of us to sell everything we have and give to the poor. He's going after this man's idols. And so if you're going, man, I mean, I'd sell everything and give to the poor. Like, that's fine. Jesus can ask me to do that and that wouldn't really bother me. Then we haven't found your idol. <laughs> but if you sit there and you say, man, whew, I'm glad Jesus isn't asking me to sell everything and give to the poor, we may have found your idol. <laughs> so I don't know what it is for you. Is it your power? Is it your influence? Is it your money? Is it your kids? Is it your family? Is it your control? Is it your ability to think things through and plan things enough out so that you never get hurt and never get betrayed? Would Jesus ask you to put that down and leave it and walk away from it because you're trusting in it? So I don't know what it is. Here's how I know you can find out what Jesus might ask you to be setting down. I know this sounds crazy. Ask him. Ask him. 
Ask him what he would have you sit down and walk away from. And if you're not hearing an answer clearly, ask your roommate or ask your spouse or ask your small group leader and ask them and say, hey, when you look at my life, what are the things in my life that you see are really hard for me to set down? What are the things in my life that you look at me, you look at my life and you say, all right, you're trusting in that to give you something. You're trusting in that to give you purpose and meaning and security and comfort and control and your affections are disordered. And then after you ask Jesus or after you ask someone in your life what those things might be, stop talking. Just, just listen to Jesus or just listen to your roommate or just listen to your, your significant other. And here's what's scary about most of those things. Most of the answers to that question, just like this man, most of the answers to that question, the things that we end up loving and the things that we end up trusting and the things that we end up running to over Jesus usually are really good things. Like if, if you were a crack dealer, I would go, yeah, you probably want to stop doing that. And you go, yeah, man, I never saw that. I never thought that that was destroying my life. That, that's, that's, that's not it. Idols almost never function that way. Now, certainly there are addictions in the room, and, and I'm not downplaying those at all. There, there are things about the addiction that you need to walk away from, but there's something under the addiction that it's giving you. There's something under the addiction that it's making you feel and making you believe and giving you something, and you need to leave that. You need to leave your commitment to that. But usually the things in our life that we have to walk away from are really good things, and our disordered affections place those things as idols over Jesus. But the moment our affections become disordered, just like this man, we start suffocating. And we start knowing that we are lacking something more. And get this, Jesus loves us enough to save us from our idols. He's coming to expose our idols because he loves us, not because he's coming to destroy us. He loves you. And because he loves you, because he's a jealous lover, he wants to loosen your death grip on the things that you've trusted more than him. And in our passage, almost hidden in plain sight is the display of just how much Jesus loves us. This is how we can know that when Jesus gets out his scalpel on our hearts, it's always to save us, it's always to liberate us, and because he loves us. It's hidden in the passage. It's almost buried, but this is, these are the kinds of things that happen when you spend a lot of like, concentrated time on one scripture passage. That, that like diamonds begin to get revealed. There's, there, there's this little gem in this passage that kind of begins to stick out as you read it 30 straight times. So when Jesus tells the man, you have to go sell everything to, to, and give it away to the poor and follow me, he, he gives that command to that man. Before he says that, he says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfect, sell everything and give it to the poor. Well, earlier in the passage, at the very beginning of their interaction, he, Jesus hints at the idea that no one is perfect except the Lord. And so you kind of see this thing begin, this definition that Jesus begins to display is that, hey, part of what perfection looks like, part of what absolute goodness and absolute perfection looks like is selling everything you have and giving it away. Jesus equates perfection with emptying oneself and giving it away for the sake of others. If you want to be perfect, this is what it might look like. Oh, and by the way, only God is perfect. He's essentially saying, do you know the infinite one who has sold everything he had to give it all away for you? 
Yes, this command to be perfect and sell everything was first meant to expose your affections. But do you also know that the one who's giving you this command is the one who has also sold everything he had and is giving it away for the sake of others? Do you know that the one who's speaking to you is the one that intentionally and deliberately lost everything he had so that he could come and get his treasure, the thing he actually loved the most? Or in the words of 2 Corinthians, do you know that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for your sake that he might make you rich? See, Jesus never has disordered affections. And because Jesus never has disordered affections, he was very willing to do whatever it took to get the thing he loved the most. Jesus very willingly was willing to sell everything he had to get the thing that his heart treasured the most, his bride, the church. Jesus wanted, he was not driven by idolatry. Jesus wanted out of rightly ordered affections to give all his treasure away in order to reclaim and redeem the treasure he loved most. If selling everything you have and giving it away would display that you actually love something more than those things, then take that, take that understanding that selling everything and giving it away to get something else would actually show what you love the most and then apply that to Jesus. What does Jesus love the most? Well, what was he willing to sell everything and get? So anytime that Jesus is asking us a question, anytime that Jesus refuses to play our idolatry games, and anytime Jesus refused to let us remain self-deceived, anytime that Jesus sees our disordered affections, he's doing it from the place that loves us more than anything. He's doing it from the place that has already sold everything he had to come for the ones he loved. And maybe, I know this, this sounds... This sounds maybe too good not to be true, but maybe the thing he's asking you to set down, maybe the thing he's asking you to leave to come and follow him is the belief that you're loved by what you do. Or maybe the thing he's calling you to set down is the belief that you're now disqualified because of something that you've done or something that's been done to you. That maybe the thing he's asking you to put down is that you really have this 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 death grip on the belief that you're really just not that worthy of being loved. And Jesus is saying, let my life and my death and my resurrection prove to you otherwise that I sold everything I had to come and get you. And now I'm asking you, literally I'm asking you to set those beliefs down, to repent of those beliefs, to get out of your disordered affections, to believing the pseudo gospels and the false gospels that you believe over believing this one, that I actually did sell everything I had to come and get you. That's actually what's most true about you and that's what's most true about my affections. I actually do love you more than I love anything else. Would you repent of it and pick up Jesus? Because just like in Mark, he's looking at you and loving you when he comes to you. And so now priests, now church, please know that we are not obeying to get something from God we obey these commandments, we keep these commandments because we are loved by God. And the idols that we trust and the idols we love will suffocate us and leave us haunted. But the love of God will liberate us and free us into rightly ordered affections. Let's pray.
Jesus, forgive us. We have believed um, so many, so many other things that would save us. We've trusted other things to come after us and, and keep us. But only you, the perfect one, only you have truly sold everything for the one that you loved. And so as we come to you in worship again, be our vision, meaning be not only the thing that guides what we see, be the thing that we see. Be the thing that our eyes and our affections are fixed upon. Be, our, be now our vision. Oh Lord, our God, we pray in your name, amen.